Okay, so we are right for the tail end of a sermon series called Faith Matters. Um, and the whole concept of the Faith Matters series has been to try to get the concept of faith which can be kind of ethereal and out there and we don't quite know what to do with it or what it means and to try to bring it down and examine it and think about it scripturally so that we get a real good sense of what does it mean to walk with God by faith. Um, there's so much bad teaching out there about faith. There's so much confusion out there about faith. Is faith a power? Is faith a, um, a thing? Is it just an attitude? Uh, does it have to do with the words that you say or the actions that you take? And we've been sort of unpacking this for weeks and weeks now, just trying to get as practical as we can about the issue of faith. Um, and about four weeks ago now, is the week of the men's retreat, um, I came back from the men's retreat and I preached a sermon that was kind of an introductory sermon to the topic of prayer in the life of faith. And um, some of you were probably here for that and others were at the retreat or not here and don't remember that. But, but basically the idea in that sermon was to, was to try to um, get us thinking um, rightly about prayer because sometimes we get a little bit off track when we think about prayer. And we think of prayer um, kind of in the wrong ways. And I wanted to get uh, basically a warning sermon out there and say, listen, there's, there's a misconception about prayer. And if you take that misconception and follow it, you're going to be extremely disappointed, extremely frustrated, and you're not going to understand who God is or how he works at all. And so basically we looked at this picture in the Old Testament of some times when God's people thought that they could sort of just do the right things, take the right religious steps, and they could manipulate God to do what they wanted Him to do. And we saw how resistant God is to that sort of thing. God says, listen, uh, I love you and I, I want to have a relationship with you, but let's be absolutely clear about one thing. I'm God and you're not. Right? He's not interested in the whole, you tell me what to do and I run errands for you thing. There's a, there's a sense in which God pours out gifts to us and He blesses us in so many ways. But oftentimes we can get all messed up in our thinking and begin to see God like He's some kind of cosmic vending machine that we put our money in, punch in the code, and we get out the thing that I want. Now, have you ever gone to a vending machine, put your money in, and then not had your snack come out? Isn't that a wonderful experience? Right? <laughs> yeah. So picture this, right? You, you've, been, you've been waiting, you're hungry, you get like your little break from work, you run to the bidding machine, you stick your dollar in, you punch in the code, the little wheel turns but not quite far enough, and the potato chips are just hanging there, right? Just teasing you, really, aren't they? And, and I, I just want you to picture this. Imagine me in that situation. Just picture how I'm going to handle that. Dave, you laughed a little too loud. I don't appreciate that. But, but you know, when, when this happens to you, you're going to do something, right? Like, if that happens to me and I'm hungry enough, either some glass is getting broken or somebody's going to jail or something bad is going to happen because I'm not putting up with that. And so when you have a vending machine that falters and it doesn't do what you need it to do or want it to do, what do you do? You kick it, you hit it, you shake it, you do whatever you can. And if that still doesn't work, no matter what you do, it doesn't work, there's going to be a couple things you're going to do. Number one, you're going to make a mental note and say, not coming back to this vending machine again because I can't trust it, right? Number two, you might even put a sign on it that tells other people, don't try to use this vending machine. You may tell your other office workers in the office, don't go to that vending machine. It takes your money and doesn't give you what it promises. 
right? Well, a whole lot of us have been taught to think of God that way. And we go and we put in our money and we punch in the code. We said the right prayer. We had the right amount of faith. We used the right words. We were positive and optimistic. We did all of those things. And we asked God for what we want. And then what we want doesn't come. And what do you do when you've jumped through all the hoops you know to jump through to get God to do what you want Him to do and God doesn't do what you want Him to do? Well, you end up getting mad at God, don't you? You end up kicking God a little bit, screaming a little bit, complaining a little bit. You may even decide, you know what, I'm not coming back to this guy. I'm not going to ask him for anything because he doesn't, he doesn't deliver on the things I ask him for. You may even go and tell other people not to go to God. Because after all, he can't be trusted. He says, ask and you shall receive. And I asked and I didn't receive. And therefore, our God cannot be trusted. And you begin to get a hardened heart for God. I've seen it happen again and again. Maybe it's happened to you. Let me ask you to think about this. If you were God, that's a terrifying thought, right? Just for a second, if you could be God for a day, and there were two people praying to you, you had the power to grant this prayer. And there are two very different people. The first one is a religious leader. He's, he's extremely, extremely devoted to his faith. Um, he is uh, morally upright. He does the right thing, given the opportunity, always does the thing that the Bible tells him to do. Um, he, he reads and studies the Bible daily. He teaches it to other people. Um, that's the kind of person that he is. He's a, he's a Bible scholar who is really trying to follow the things that he sees in the Bible. That's person number one. Person number two, on the other hand, is despicable. He's, uh, he's, he's spiritually cold. He, he's... he's He's just not really that interested in God. He doesn't really come to church on a regular basis. Um, in fact, he's, he's known to be dishonest. He's known to be a thief. He's known to be a traitor to his own people. Um, and he really doesn't pay God much attention. But now he stopped to pray. And those two people are praying. The one, that, the one that is a despicable, dishonest traitor and thief. And the other one is, a, is an upright, morally upstanding Bible scholar. Which one of those two prayers are you likely to listen to? Well, it's kind of cool because God answers the question for us in Luke chapter 18. So turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, the book of Luke, right after Mark and before John. Go to Luke 18. And Jesus presents this very scenario to us. Now, you probably know that a lot of the times when Jesus wanted to teach something of spiritual significance, he told stories, right? He would, he would tell what's called parables, and they were, they were these uh, fictional stories that were meant to teach us a lesson, and we're supposed to get the spiritual lesson out of the parable. Here we have a parable. It begins in Luke 18, verse 9. It says, And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, 
This man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if we're going to take seriously this idea of the life of faith, and especially as it relates to prayer, how we address God, how we come to God, and when God hears our prayer and answers our prayer, then uh, we should stop and evaluate what we can learn from this story that Jesus told in order to teach us about the kinds of people that God is likely to listen to. The kinds of people that God is likely to answer the prayers of. There's only one of these two men who went away justified that day. Remember, the first man is a Pharisee. He's a, he's a pastor. He's a priest. He's a preacher. Um, this is what he does full time. He just studies the Word of God. He teaches it to people. He goes out of his way to follow all the rules in Scripture. And when he comes to pray, the Scripture tells us, Jesus in his parable says, he's praying silently to himself, but Jesus knows what he's praying. And he prays this, Lord, I thank you that I'm so cool. I thank you that I'm so spiritually strong. I thank you that you have not allowed me to spin out of control in life and end up like that dirt bag over there. See that tax collector? I'm so glad I'm not like him, God. Thank you for that. Thank you, God, for making me wonderful. That's his prayer. And God says, the other person is a tax collector. Now, you've probably heard about tax collectors in those days. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but here's what you've got to know about tax collectors. They were Jews who, living under the Roman occupation, were, um, they were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes from the people. So they would literally go door to door, business to business, and they would uh, require that you pay your taxes to them. Okay? Now, just picture that. Imagine that in our society today. Instead of having to file your taxes by a certain date, that knock comes at the door, and there's the tax guy, and whatever day he comes, he says, listen, you owe me $1,000, and you have to come up with it. But to make it worse, he works for the Roman government on a commission basis. So the Romans say, we want you to collect $1,000 from every household, and he decides how much to ask for. So he goes to the household, and if he thinks they have a little bit more money, he says, hey, I want $2,500 from you. And they have to pay it. And he has the authority, the Roman government, to have them arrested and put in jail if they don't pay it. That $2,500 that he collects, he pockets $1,500 and gives $1,000 to the government. So not only are the taxes exorbitant to begin with, but he's getting rich off the backs of his own people. There's nobody who's more hated in all of Jewish society than the Roman tax collector. This guy is also there at the, at the temple that day worshiping. And, the, and Jesus says he, he couldn't even lift his head. He couldn't even look up to God and call out. He just was beating and blasting. He was crying out to God, I know I'm a sinner. Please, God, pour out your mercy on me. I'm so desperately in need of you. I can't do anything to help myself. I desperately need you. And of those two people, who does that make? one in the fancy robe, the one with the Bible memorized, the one who can check off all of his spiritual to-do list. No, he answers the humble. Because that man went away justified. So we've been talking in our, in our series about who God listens to when we come to him in prayer. 
And we've already established in many weeks, we've talked about this at different times during this series, that, that faith is about obedience. That we don't get to say, I believe in God, but I don't follow Him. I believe in God, but I don't do what He says. I believe in God, but I don't subject myself to His authority. Um, if you don't subject yourself to His authority, you don't have faith. That's what the Bible tells us. And we've talked about that many times in the different sermons on this subject. So we know that God listens to those who are obedient. But today I want to add a second thing when we ask the question, who does God listen to? God listens to those who are humble. And humility is one of these things that is so um, undervalued in our society. And so undervalued in Christianity. That even as Christians, we don't think very often about how important it is to humble ourselves. But we're going to look today at what the Bible has to say about humility and pride, and we're going to figure out how really, really important all this is. Now, if you've been sleeping up to this point, the person next to you is sleeping, elbow them, okay? And you could go back to sleep after this. But if you don't get this, you'll miss the whole point, okay? So if you're going to write anything down, write down these three words. God hates pride. He hates it. And you say, well, hate's a pretty strong word. Does God really hate? Yes. He hates pride. And he says it over and over and over again in Scripture. Now, most of us have heard that before. We have heard that pride is bad and we're supposed to be humble and we're not supposed to be proud. Um, but in our hearts, most of us really don't appreciate the significance of a life of pride. How dangerous it is how devastating it is, and how seriously God takes it. We don't think of pride as one of the big sins. I mean, just last week, we went to 1 Corinthians 6, we're reading these lists of life-dominating sins, people who are liars and swindlers and, and fornicators and adulterers and the homosexuals. We're like, wow, these are huge sins. These are the kinds of things that God just turns His back on people when they do those things. And yet, we think of pride, and it's just kind of a thing in my heart, and you know, if you're ever in like a, a small group or a Christian accountability group and, and you don't really want to share what you're really struggling with because you don't want to be embarrassed, but you want to share something so you look spiritual, just say, I've been struggling with pride. Because everybody goes, oh yeah, I get that. That's an acceptable sin. You know, imagine if you were in a, an accountability group and somebody walked in and said, hey, how's it going? What are you struggling with? And somebody said, well, you know, I murdered three people this morning. Yeah, freak you out, right? You'd be like, um, okay. Uh, how do I deal with that? That's a huge deal. Pride? Eh, you know, we are well. That was pride. God says we've got to stop. We don't understand how truly significant pride is. I'm convinced that there is no more serious sin that a human can commit than the sin of pride. That's kind of a strong statement. Here's what I think about pride. I think pride is the rose bowl of sin. It's the granddaddy of the moment. That you, you name a sin, and I can trace it back to pride in the heart. But there, there probably is not a single sin or an act of sin that anyone commits that doesn't find its root 
in pride because what is pride? Rebellion against God. Pride is putting myself on the throne of my own life. Pride is taking myself so seriously that I think that I ought to be the one that determines the way of my life. And when I think that I'm the one who is best prepared to play the role of God in my life and I push God off the throne and I go ahead and sin in any way, then it's my pride that is driving me to do that. Pride is a huge issue. Now, obviously, I hope it's clear. I'm not talking about things like taking pride in your work or being proud of your children's accomplishments and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about what the Bible calls pride. That idea of making yourself the center of your own universe. The idea of insisting on being in control of my own life. The, the concept of not being willing to submit to the authority of God in my life or the authority of other people whom God has placed in authority in my life. Thinking that that I have it all figured out. Thinking that I'm somehow better than other people who are struggling with different sins than I'm struggling with. Thinking that you have a righteousness in and of yourself. Pride. You think murder is a terrible sin? How did you feel this week or last week when you saw the news report about the five military personnel that were shot dead and brutally murdered were you disgusted? Were you sick to your stomach? Were you When you hear about a murder that takes place, don't you just grin with it? Ah, oh, that's so terrible. What's the foundation? What is the basis of murder? You think adultery is a terrible thing? Somebody would make a commitment, an oath, a covenant with another person and then break that covenant and cheat on their spouse? Do you think that's a terrible sin? What's the, what's the root of adultery? Do you think that rape is a terrible sin? I'm just trying to come up with things that, are, that everybody agrees are awful. Did you, see the, did you see the news report this week about the water park incident in Vietnam? There's a, there's a water park in Vietnam um, like Raging Waters, that sort of place. And they, they had a special uh, promotion where they let everyone in free for the first two hours of the day. They had no idea they were going to have such a huge crowd and they totally oversold it and everybody was there. The place was packed out. There was way too many people for the security and the personnel and all that kind of stuff. And in this place they have one of those lazy rivers. You know, you just get in and float down the river, that kind of thing. And it was just packed with people. Packed, like shoulder to shoulder. And out of nowhere, just all of a sudden, a group of hundreds of men in this lazy river just started attacking and assaulting and sexually molesting the women that were in there. Just tearing off bathing suits. And it was just this out of control. Just dozens and dozens of women assaulted. What? Just out of the blue? I read the story and I thought, God, I said, I know there are sick people. I know that there are evil people. I know there are people who would do something like this. But hundreds of them all at once without planning? What does that tell you about the hearts of people? You think that to assault a woman in that way is a terrible sin? What's the root of that? I want what I want when I want it. I value myself more than I value you. I will control. I will... I, I, I. Guys, we could just go down the list of all of the terrible sins 
and go, you know what, in every case it's all about me and my and what I want. It's all about that. Let me say this again. God hates But you don't have to take my word for it. We're going to let God speak for himself as we always try to do. I want you to, to actually, I'm going to put these verses up on the, on the screen so you don't have to take the time to look them up. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Everyone who is proud in heart is a what? Abomination. That's a big word. That's that same word that we were looking at in the whole study of sexual sin and depravity. And we said, oh, those are terrible sins. All those terrible people. It's abomination. You go, well, okay, but it's just like an attitude thing. Is it really that big a deal? God calls it an abomination. And He says, if you have a prideful heart, I promise you, God promises, you will not go on time. Wow. Apparently, this is serious to God. Proverbs 26, verse 12. You see a man wise in his own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for him. And you're pridefully hopeless. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Pride and arrogance are the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. There's God using that word again. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly. But the haughty, He knows from afar. Haughty means arrogance, proud. Haughty people, He keeps His distance from, the Bible says. Oh, He knows you. He's watching you. He knows what's going on. But there's no relational closeness with God when pride and arrogance is at the heart of who you are. But even though he is so highly exalted, he associates with the Lord. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud against grace. The humble. That's pretty serious. God opposes the proud. The opposition of God. Imagine that. Imagine that, you know, you had to uh, you had to be in a boxing match and you had to do it for your life. Winner take all. If you lose, you die. And it puts you up against the heavyweight championship. That's a lousy opponent to draw, isn't it? He's so much bigger, so much stronger, so much more powerful. Give him a chance. And the Bible says that if we are Christ. God becomes our opponent instead of our support system. He becomes our enemy instead of our friend. Pride. That's serious. Won't be God's opponent? I'll tell you somebody who became God's opponent. There was this angel named Lucifer. God created him. He made him beautiful, spectacular. He was an archangel. He was one in authority over all of the other angels. He was the most beautiful thing God ever created according to Scripture. And he was a servant of God. In the book of Ezekiel, it tells us what happened in uh, Lucifer's life. So go to Ezekiel in your Old Testament, go to the back of the Old Testament, and go to Ezekiel chapter 28. What's happening here in Ezekiel is... Ezekiel is prophesying against these kings. They're of, like these city-states. And each one has its own king. And they're all, they're all um, 
going after false gods and leading the people astray. And so uh, Ezekiel is prophesying against them. And when he comes to the city of Tyre and he is going to address that king, um, what God does is he uses a poetic device and he, he compares this king of Tyre to Lucifer. And he tells Lucifer's story. Here's what he says. Um, Thus says the Lord God, verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, You have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, the zulu, the turquoise, and emerald. And the gold, the workmanship, and the settings of your sockets was in you. Can you know what you picture in your mind when you when you think of an angel some sort of like ethereal misty ghost-like thing maybe with some wings maybe there's some 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 light emitting from this being it says that lucifer is covered with precious stones. just imagine this what in, what lucifer was created to be he's covered with these precious stones right and overlaid in gold and who is he made to be in the presence of? God, the source of all light. When the light of God is shining off of Lucifer, think of the reflection. Think of the beauty. He was created to be a reflection of God's immense beauty. That's Lucifer. Verse 14. You were the appointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and despair. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So what is his great sin? And he lifted himself up in his own heart. It tells us elsewhere that he said, I want to be lifted up equal to God. And so what was the result? Verse um, 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Cast down to be the ultimate symbol of shame the ultimate symbol of evil and the one who will be have the wrath of God poured out of him for all of you. Why? It's not great to become the enemy of God because of your pride. Pride's worse than we thought, isn't it? Why did Adam and, Adam and Eve rebel against God? Right? Lucifer came along and said, listen, you can be like God. You don't have to listen to him. Do it your own way. Be your own God. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Why did the people of Noah's day do only evil continually? Pride. Why did Pharaoh challenge God and oppress his people? Pride. Why did David take Bathsheba, the wife of his servant? Pride. Why didn't Nebuchadnezzar have to be cast out into the wilderness and live like an animal crawling around on all fours? Pride. Here's one. Why did Pilate sentence Jesus to the cross? 
Who's Christ? Yours and mine. Before we get all caught up in looking down on these like people like Judas and Pilate and we look, oh, you guys, you sold out Jesus. You crucified Christ. Let's be very clear. The Bible is as clear as it could possibly be. The only reason Jesus had to go to that cross is you and me. It's our crime. So, so we have to we gotta own this. We've got to recognize this for what it is. It would be as if you went to the doctor and they said, listen, you got stage 4 cancer. And you went, oh, it's only that. Okay. No, you got to take it seriously. That's what pride is. It's a terrible thing. And if you cling to it, you'll be, oppressed, uh, you'll be opposed by God. He didn't respond to the self-righteous Pharisees. He responded to the lowly taxes collector. And that's the one who was And we've been talking about walking by faith. But this is something that we have to be aware of because as we grow in our walk of faith, those of us who are Christians, as we grow in our walk of faith and we actually learn to, to make God a priority and we begin to read and study His Word and we begin to learn some truth and we begin to know Him better and we have some success in overcoming some of the sin patterns in our lives that we're trying to get rid of and we start to walk more closely with God, guess what? We're in more danger than ever of the sin of Christ. Spiritual pride. That's what the Pharisee had. His problem was not that he wasn't religious enough. He was too religious. He was so full of himself. He thought he was impressing God. He thought he was earning God's favor. And God said, no way, it doesn't work that And when we get this spiritual arrogance, we run this danger that we're actually going to look down upon other people because their sins happen to be different than ours. When you find yourself doing that, and you're wondering whether that other person's sin is worse than yours or not, the answer is no, because yours is the sin of pride, and that's the worst. And so that's why we can't look down and judge other people and consider ourselves better than them. That this, this Pharisee was going, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Oh, I can't imagine the look on God's face if you said that. We have to watch out for this because one of the dangers of pride is that we get to the point where we think that we can handle stuff. We get to the point that we're doing so well that we think, I can walk up right on the edge of the cliff here and it's not going to be a problem. And we get real close to the edge of the cliff and something shifts and pretty soon we fall. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed as he falls. When you think you stand, and you're you stand. It happened to King David, didn't it? We talked about Bathsheba, right? Think about this. He's the king. He had multiple wives at the time. Uh, he goes up on the roof of his palace. He's got an army out fighting a battle for him. He's in the, in the peace and the comfort of his palace. He goes up on the roof of his palace just to look out on the great city that he has built and dedicated to God and where he reigns as the supreme authority and as the king. And as he's up there, you know the story. He looks through the window. He sees her bathing and lust takes over his heart. He sends someone over to get her and bring her back. And by the way, the scripture doesn't tell us like her level of uh, involvement in this, whether she was, this was consensual or not. But he's the king. So it's, you have no option, right? 
So he takes advantage of this woman, impregnates her, sends her home. When he finds out that she's pregnant, he calls the, the husband back from the field to say, hey, you've been doing such a great job, I wanted to give you a weekend of R&R, go spend some time with your wife. He figures that way it will be obvious and nobody will wonder how she got pregnant. And the guy is too faithful to do that. He goes, how can I do that when my own soldiers, my own comrades are there putting their lives at risk? I can't go home and enjoy the pleasures of my wife. And he refuses to do it. So finally, David puts a note in his hand and a sealed envelope. says, give this to your commander. And he gives it to the commander. And it says, take this guy, Uriah, put him at the front of the fiercest battle. And when the battle is the fiercest, pull everyone back from him and let him get killed. And so he covers up his sin of adultery arguably his sin of rape with the sin of murder. These are right at the top of the sin chart, right? Adultery, rape, murder. This is a big deal. And it happened just when he was doing so well. You know what else David was probably doing that day before he went up on the roof? He was probably writing one of the psalms that we have in our Bible today. He was probably spending time in prayer and worship. He was probably leading a rehearsal of the worship band for the time that they were going to have the next worship service. He, he, was, he was thinking about how he could lead these people to worship God and to honor God as a nation. And he walks up on the roof of his house. He's doing so well. And bam, it all comes from and if you didn't already know the story, if you didn't know that this terrible stuff happened in David's life, and you just started reading David's story from the beginning, he's a shepherd boy, and then he gets chosen by God to be anointed as the king, and then he goes off and slays the giant, and then the king is after him, and he refuses to fight against the king, and he just trusts God, and he writes the Psalms, and he leads the people in worship, and he becomes this great warrior, and he becomes this great king. And if you're reading this story, there's no way you would think that when I turn this next page, I'm going to see adultery, rape, and murder. You would never have seen that coming. You would never have believed it could happen. And here's the thing, neither did he. And that's where it was. Would you ever have thought that David could do something to say? Would you ever thought yourself capable of some of the things you've done? And you shake your head Pride makes us think we can handle anything. It makes us believe that we know better than God. It tempts us to walk right up to the edge of that. Before we know it, boom, it's done. What was David's sin? Adultery? Yes. Murder? Yes. But perhaps the greatest sin was the sin that made those things possible to read the root of the problem is not our action. David learned that the hard way and, and he, he learned what the results were because his fellowship with God was badly interrupted. In fact, he wrote in uh, Psalm 66, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God stopped listening to it. He's just like a parent. We've seen it again and again in Scripture. When God's people had their hearts far from Him, when they were pridefully putting themselves first instead of putting God first, when they were going through the motions of worship even though they were being unjust toward other people, when they would not love their enemies, when their, when their worship was false, what did God do? He said, shut up. 
I'm not listening to your songs of praise. I'm watching your lives. And they don't match. I don't want to smell the incense. I don't want to see the offerings. Get away from me. I don't want anything to do with this. God says, I'm not listening to you because of the pride of your life. See, we have all these promises in the Scripture. Promises about prayer. Promises about the walk of faith. And they're true. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Right? Are those promises true? Yes, but they come in a context. And the context is one who walks humbly with God. Because God opposes the proud. And if God is opposing you, you can't expect Him to be doing what you're asking Him to do. Let's not forget who God is. Let's not forget who we are. He is the exalted one. And we are the lowest. He opposes the proud and gives grace to Him. So what do we do? How do we respond to God when we realize that the sin of pride has taken root in our own heart? And if you're sitting here today and you're going, wow, I'm glad this isn't me. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Um, so what do we do when we look in the mirror and go, yuck, I don't like that. It's sin in my life. is pride. What do we do? Well, that's an excellent question and I'm very glad you asked. I find it interesting in the Bible how many stories there are of men and women who start off well and then they, they turn left, right? And they, they end up far from God. And their lives are just destroyed. And the story is told again and again and again. Just the king that preceded David, his name was Saul, right? Look what happened to him. He just, he just started thinking of himself more highly than he should. When God gave him very clear directions, he said, you know what, God? That's close, but I have a little better idea. And he did it his way. And he did it again and again until finally God said, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I'm taking your kingdom from you. I'm taking your spiritual inheritance from you. I'm taking my Holy Spirit from you. I'm going to have nothing to do with you. And Saul's story ends that way in his mind. Maybe he's one of the most amazing stories in Scripture of someone who lifts himself up with pride and finds out what it's like to have God as an opponent is in Acts chapter 12. Go to Acts 12 real quick and you can Because in Acts chapter 12, we have the story of this King Herod. Herod is the Jewish king, right? He's the king of the Jews, which is the title that Jesus was given, and that's what caused a lot of the problem, right? So remember Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and Herod tried Jesus and abused him and sent him back to Pilate? Well, later in the book of Acts, we find Herod. And what is Herod doing? He's doing what politicians do. He's making a speech. Now, you're going to see more and more of this because it's political season, right? And you're going to see, you're going to see footage of political rallies. And there is a politician who is standing up on a platform above everybody else, and he looks down on a giant crowd, and that crowd has been picked to support him, and so they're shouting and cheering for him, and they're not even really listening to what he says, because it doesn't matter what he says, because we're his supporters, we're going to cheer for him, and this whole political thing is going on. Well, that's exactly what Herod's doing. He's up on a platform, he comes up to the podium to make his speech. And as he begins to make his speech, the people begin to cry out. Look what it says in Acts 12, 21. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. 
the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. They're probably not covering this in Kids Connection. Although I think it would be a very cool craft, wouldn't it? The gummy worms. Anyways. So, he, he's speaking. Now, if you read extra biblical historians, here's what you find out about this. Literally, on this day that he is making this speech, while he's making the speech, he is struck ill. And he has to be helped off of the podium. And he is taken and put in his bed where he suffers terribly because his body is filled, is filled with intestinal worms and they literally eat him to death. That's what happens to King Herod. God opposes the prophet. There are many more examples where a man lets his pride take over and he's never restored by God. He's just destroyed. What's interesting to me is how David's story is different. David, adultery and murder. And yet he goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. He's the great King David, the writer of the Psalms. He is the one who, who calls the nation of Israel back to a place of worship. He is the one who is honored by God. And that the city of Jerusalem is forever known as the city of David. And that the uh, Messiah, Jesus, had to come from his line. How is it that you can mess up as badly as he did and you don't get eaten by worms and die? How is it that your life is restored to something beautiful and powerful and wonderful and is a blessing to God? Well, here's how this happens. After this situation with um, Bathsheba and Uriah, David thought, hey, I got it covered. He's dead. Nobody's going to know. I'm going to look heroic because I'm going to marry his widow, take her into the house, raise the baby as my own. Won't I look heroic? And he does this. And one day the prophet comes to meet with him, the prophet Nathan. And he comes to him and, and he tells him a story. He says, there's a man in our kingdom. And he's very, very wealthy and he owns thousands of head of sheep. And next door to him is a very poor man. And he only has one lamb and it's his pet. And when the rich man receives visitors, he wants to have a feast for them. And instead of butchering one of his own sheep, he takes the lamb from his poor neighbor and serves it to his friends. And David is enraged. And he says, this man has to be brought to justice. This man is despicable. This man must be harshly punished. Bring this man to me. Nathan looked him in the eye and he said, Your Highness, you are the man. You've taken your neighbor's wife and he explains that God knows exactly what David's response to me. Because David immediately admits that he did it and then he goes into seclusion where he's crying out to God, confessing his sin and begging for mercy. And, and all we would know is that he went and cried out to God, except that while he was doing that, while he was shut away in a room crying out to God, he actually recorded his prayer. He wrote it down. And it's, it's come to us in Scripture in Psalm 51. So turn in the book of Psalms to Psalm 51. 
This is a psalm that says of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is what he wrote to God. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I want you to pay close attention to the way that he speaks here. He takes full responsibility for everything. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, I have sinned. You see how he just owns it? He takes full responsibility. You remember what happened when the prophet Samuel came to Saul and said, what is it you've done? Saul pointed the finger, shifted the blame, made it everybody else's problem, wouldn't take any responsibility for any of it. What's the difference between the way Saul's life ends up and the way David's life ends up? It's the humility with which they responded to their season of sin. He cries out to God. Let me keep reading. Um, in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I will give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrived heart, O oh God, you will not despise. See, when we look at this issue of sin, every one of us is guilty. And as I said before, seriously, if you think you're not guilty of sin, you've just convicted yourself. If you think you're not guilty of the sin of pride, you're wrong. And so we, we have this mirror held up, we go, oh, yes, this is terrible. What do I do? I'll tell you what you do. You fall on your face before a holy God and you take the wrath. You confess your own sin and you cry out to God for mercy. And our God will see to it that you are washed whiter than snow. That's why that cross hangs on a wall. Because we know that our God is so good and so loving and so merciful that if we will but humble ourselves in His presence and cry out to Him, He will take the garbage that we bring to Him and make out of it something beautiful in His What an awesome God. What did James say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will. David said it himself. God will not cast out a contrived heart. Some of us are so concerned about getting what we think God owes us. 
Some of us are so caught up in getting our snacks out of the machine that our approach to God is something more of a, I, I just need to know what it costs me to get the things I want. And God says, if that's your attitude, you miss the whole thing. It doesn't cost you anything. It costs me everything. I gave my own son. He shed his blood for you to be set free. So let's continue to walk the faith. How do we make sure that God did it first? How can we see to it that our relationships with other people are right? I have an old saying. It doesn't matter what the problem is. The answer is that it works 100%. It doesn't matter what the problem is. The answer is that it You say, but I'm, I'm being accosted, I'm being attacked. My name is being sullied. The answer is found in the So but there's bitterness that I have in my heart because somebody has hurt me. The answer is found in the can't get along with my son. The answer is found in humility. Doesn't matter what the problem is. The answer is always found in humility. Found in humility.